0: Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome back to the podcast. It's episode 490. Gosh, we're getting close to 500. We're going to hit that mark next year, but it is November 8th, 2023. I'm really excited to have Quint Studer back on the podcast again—it's been a couple of years. I've known Quint and really enjoyed and respected his work for a long time. So I'm glad we can have this discussion today. He has done a lot of work in healthcare, but boy, I would encourage you—if if, if you don't work in healthcare, please listen in. There's just so much um, great conversation about leadership and improvement, and there's a lot. To learn from Quint here. So for links and more information about him, his books, and more, look in the show notes or go to leanblog.org/490. Well, hi, welcome back to Lean Blog Interviews. I'm Mark Raven. Our guest today is Quint Studer. He's currently the co-founder of Healthcare Plus Solutions Group. He's also owner of the minor league baseball team, the Pensacola Blue Wahoos. Quint uh, has joined us once before. He was here in episode Three fifty-three back in uh, 2019, we talked then about his one of his previous books, The Busy Leader's Handbook. He's written many other books. His first being Hardwiring Excellence. It's a book that was recommended to me, thankfully, when I first um, had the opportunity to work in healthcare in 2005, and and, and that book made a really huge. Impact uh, on on me. Um, so before I tell you a little bit more about Quint, um, thank you again for for that book and your others, and, and thank you for being back here today. How are you?
1: Well, I'm good, and thank you for your books. I think we trade books, and uh, <laughs> I think we have a lot of similarities, which I I really like. I think philosophically, we're pretty much always been on this in the same in the same room many times in the same sentence, same chapter. So thanks for the impact you have. Well, thank you
0: and yeah that was the thing that struck me about hardwiring excellence um very similar concepts and mindsets maybe some slightly different language but um yeah i appreciate the alignment and you know the, the the positive example that that you've set through that book and and other work so really happy to have um the conversation here um quint previously founded a studer group which received the malcolm baldridge national quality award in 2011 i know my listeners are familiar uh, with that program and the importance of that. He's also a speaker, an entrepreneur, and a philanthropist. His most recent book is called The Calling, Why Healthcare is So Special. So we'll talk about that today. And then uh, his latest book, um, I may have misspoke. A previous recent book was The Calling. The latest one was Rewiring Excellence. And uh, coming out March 2024, an upcoming book called The Human Margin, Building the Foundations of Trust, uh, written in partnership with Catherine A. Meese. So um, uh, first off, Quint, how do you find the time? (laughs) You're very productive.
1: (laughs) Well, I am. I think I have a sense of urgency. I I think what I do, Mark, is I'm out in the field all the time. I mean, this is the first time I've been home in a week and I leave in an hour to go out. I think when you've got boots on the ground, so a lot of times my books, I've already written them per se by talking to people, Mm -hmm. by being out there in in the field and you know the calling came about from being out in the field during the pandemic yeah and just watching people lose their calling and that's how generated that rewiring came about because ironically when i'm out there i'm trying to get people to quit being so stringent on hardwiring you know they read this hardwiring book and hardwiring says do it this way well they're There's people 20 years ago, they treated cancer differently than they treat today. They have different technology. And it's not that the themes aren't the same, they are. But, you know, we all want to be effective. We all want to look at, like, you know, you mentioned Malcolm Baldr's, the plan, do, study, adjust, all that stuff. Well, if you use that, then you look at what's happening in healthcare, particularly with all the new people. 25% of managers are. They took a job during after the pandemic started because they got promoted within 30% of the employees came after the pandemic. So if you really look at planning, you have to look at planning for the lack of experience. That means you have to study that. And that led to rewiring. It's like, if it works, don't, you know, you like this in, in your work. If it works, don't mess with it. But if it's not working, maybe we should step back. The CEO of a Adina Healthcare in Chillicothe, Ohio put up a a slide about three months ago and I was there and I loved it. She said, we will continue to do the same behavior even when it quits getting results. Really? That makes sense to me. Okay. It's, it's not, it's not working. So why we, why we keep doing this? So I I got into rewiring because in healthcare, patient experience has not moved since 2016. Well, if something doesn't move in like six, seven years, you say, well, Maybe we should relook at this thing a little bit. It goes back to your stuff. Then you've got to not beat yourself up for what you did. You just have to say okay, we're doing the best we can, but now we've got to mm-hmm. look at something differently.
0: Yeah. Yeah. When when do we refine or tweak what's been hardwired and when do we reinvent it? Like, is it, you know, kind of additions to the wiring or we yeah. is it more of a whole home electrical redo, you know?
1: Yeah, and it's like your stuff and you're reading your books and your are you know, the book, The Mistakes That Make Us. And we talk about the fact that, you know, is it could be a system issue, could be a process issue, which ties in, could be a technology issue. Sometimes the technology is not working like we thought it would could be a people issue. And I think you have to just take time. I'm a diagnostician. I started off as uh, I like to diagnose before you treat. And I think sometimes we read a book, we hear a speaker, and we run out and we start trying to put in the treatment plan when we haven't done a good diagnosis. Mm -hmm.
0: Or what may have worked for the patient over here, meaning health system A, might not work for health system B
1: or even on the unit, we're very much, we're very much into, um, you know, precision medicine has changed medicine, you know, and I hope it keeps changing it. Because, you know, so far in medicine, we've been an intervention medicine, not a prevention medicine. Well, precision medicine, though it is intervention, it now can help us get into prevention. And I think what we're learning is, just because this individual responds well to this treatment doesn't mean this person's going to respond the same way to that treatment, just like is training and development of people. Um, I think it's N equals one. What works in developing Mark might be different than developing, you know, Veronica. So we've got to look at it. Could be based on your experience, could be based on your critical thinking skills, could be based on a whole sorts of things. So that's what led to rewiring. I, lo- I watched a tape of Steve Jobs. You know, you have all these great videos of Steve Jobs. And when he came back to Apple, he said, my my goal is to make us what we used to do obsolete. And not because you just want to make it obsolete, because we want to make it better. And that's why I learned, Mark, about organizations. It's the ones who really want to get better are already usually pretty good. Uh, the ones that don't want to get better are blaming something else for their results instead right. of themselves.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean that phrase good to great, thinking of you know the Jim Collins book. I think that phrase resonates for that reason and others. like
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to ask, and there's so much we can dig into on, on some of the other books, but you know you sort of brought up this idea of um, the sense of calling that people have and um, you know we've run across this a lot like socially, I had the chance to meet a couple. They're both surgeons. And uh, one of them, he's a, a thoracic surgeon, or I should say, was a thoracic surgeon, because he retired in his early fifties. Not because he didn't enjoy or couldn't do the clinical work. He said he loved helping people and the clinical work. He just got he, he just got fed up with the environment and the circumstances. And I don't know, yeah, I don't know if he used the word burnout, but you know, I think of and and his wife is still working, but. You know, I think of like the loss in terms of you know his potential, the benefit to patients and society. Um, you know, he he got pulled away from that calling. So you know, I'm I'm, I'm curious, Quint. Um, maybe not an easy question to answer, but but what what do leaders need to do to help avoid that that type of burnout or people retiring so young? I mean, there's probably many many things, but what's something?
1: Well, I wrote a book in 2015, a doctor called me up in 2014. Dr. George Ford, and he said, people listen to you. I don't know if you really, they do, but he said that, and you know, a little flattery will get me hooked. And he said, um, you should be talking about physician burnout. And he told me his own story. And then he showed me research. So I wrote a book in 2015 called Healing Physician Burnout. And it really, um, because I wasn't out enough to promote it. Who knows? I think sometimes you get ahead of the curve, Mm -hmm. but but it's really, and I'll talk about physicians particularly. um, We in healthcare treat our we. I know I'm going to separate people, and I apologize for saying that, but you know. The Bulls treated Michael Jordan a little bit different than the 12th man on the basketball team. They all got certain things. They did. They all got the same locker room, the same trainer, but there were differences. And I talk about, you know, you mentioned I own a minor league baseball team. Minor league baseball treats its players better than healthcare treats its physicians. Mm, Really? And and I, I bring that up because if you look at a physician, they're like a Blue Angel pilot here in Pensacola. They're your highest performers. They're your biggest impact players. So when you go to a health organization and you say, how much of your revenue is driven by physicians outside self pay coming to the emergency room? It's all of it. Well, if most industries, if you, if you have a, an insurance company, you have your top salesman, you, you, you figure out how do I, what can I do to make this person the most productive person I can be? And I think in healthcare we haven't done that. We we we've we've just sort of think everybody's the same, and you're calling the Catherine Meese in the book, the the margin sort of calls it a passion tax because people are so passionate about what they're doing they'll pay in tax almost to keep doing it because their purpose is driven. But then they get wore out. So I think what you do is you 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 say okay these are our most you know our most valuable people. You know, I went to uh, Moffitt Cancer Center yesterday for a checkup because I've been, you know, having some stuff there. And, you know, um, I went there because they have a national reputation. I went to a doctor that's got a national reputation and I appreciated the opportunity to be with them. I hate to think the fact that if I would have gone to see him, they said, wait, quit yesterday. So I'll go real quick. I know you got time, but let me just explain. How you nice. teach how we treat a minor league baseball player Yeah, yeah. compared to a doc. In my Healing Physician Burnout book, I start the book out talking about Dr. Pamela Hodel, who's a pancreatic, head of the pancreatic cancer center at Moffitt, okay? She operated on my sister. She did a, a whipple. She was in the room 13 and a half hours. When she came out, she was exhausted and crying. It was a Friday night. Um, I wondered when she went into that surgeon lounge on a Friday night, what type of nutritionist meal they had for And now I'll go to baseball. In baseball, because we're part of Major League Baseball, we have nutrition rules. So from noon on to about midnight, we have to have all nutritious food in the locker room because they want these players eating right because that's their future. So we... Truly, we we get like how much protein they should get, how much vegetable they should get. You don't see pizza, you don't see this stuff in locker rooms anymore. It's all nutritional based food. Next, they have a trainer because they're going to be standing. You know, they have to go out and during a game and stand sometimes 20 minutes before they can come sit down again in the dugout. So they have a trainer. They have a strength and conditioning coach. They have a nutritionist, strength and conditioning coach. They have a a trainer who works with them on like, you know, if in baseball, if Pamela Hoda was in baseball, she would have came in and got a rub down after 13 and a half hours. Then she has a mental health coach because she's going to handle failure in baseball. Um, So all these things they do for athletes, because that's our future in these athletes. You know, I noticed Minnesota when they had Nelson Cruz created a nap room because they found that players like to take naps. And so I say that, and people say to me, do you think we should do those things for physicians? I said, yeah, I think so. Now, then we're going to get in regu- regulated. And, you know, it's just so frustrating because, you know, you've got certain managed care companies turning down 90, 90% of their claims, even though they're going to approve them. So we've, we've made technology you know, is, are you working for technology or is technology working for you? And for doctors, they're working for technology. So I don't have a great answer, but I know it's not just telling them to go meditate and be resilient. Right. You got to right. do way more than that. And it's create the right work atmosphere for them.
0: Right. No, it's really powerful. And I I don't mind uh, the baseball talk. I was going to ask you more about that. In fact, I'm holding up for those watching on YouTube. I mean, I normally fidget with the baseball when I'm sitting here and it's usually off, um, off camera because I, I I still love uh the game I played a little bit as a kid I wasn't good enough but I still love um baseball but I mean you you, you raise so many important points there and what what I hear is not happening is you know this I, I think is bad habit that comes across in different ways when when leaders blame their employees and it could be oh you know th- those employees are unengaged those employees aren't on board with change and I t- I wish we could stop the blame game
1: well, I think I think when you point a finger, you have three pointing back. And you know, this whole idea, well, these they're young, so they don't have a good work ethic. I don't know. I have a grandson named Cooper Kennedy, he's 23. I think he's got a real good work ethic. I have another grandson named Quinn. We call him Q four. And yesterday, while he's going to college at University of St. Thomas, he went over to Lake Minaka and spent the day pulling out peers because the winter's coming. So yeah, I I that's the easy way out. The easy way out is to blame and point a finger and just think it's, you know, it's that rationalization, Mark. That's why when we, when I worked with organizations and I think I learned, you know, the Heath brothers reinforce this in their book, switch change when change is hard. There's always somebody gets it right in the organization or more than that. So I was in Kansas city one time and they were saying, well, the reason this is because these employees, it's their wages. And I, I'm not saying compensation is not important. Yet we went to a, a department that had lower wages and those employees were highly engaged. Okay. Or, or you go to uh, um, years ago, working with a large healthcare system with over 100 plus hospitals, we found some of the employee engagement, they liked corporate. Some they really liked corporate. Some they thought corporate was okay and some they thought corporate was the evil empire. And and so they're the same corporate. So what defines the difference? So I'm always trying to say, you know, what defines difference market? You'll find this, we we just, um, my new company Healthcare Plus Solution Group has really gotten into research. So working with the ANA and the AONL, we've done two studies on nursing. And this is something you might not think about, but when you talk to nurses, And you ask them for you, I'm talking inpatient now, acute. What's important to you? And they say, Oh, that CNA is really important. Well, do CEOs know the turnover of CNAs right now? Do they know how happy CNAs are? Because this is a position that if you do it right, there should be no turnover. Then they said this one, Mark, which was a wake up call. um, Gee, charge nurses are now in staffing. I've heard that a lot. Yeah. And you have so many new nurses here that, that, that charge nurse is a lifeline. So when we pull that lifeline out, so now that's again, diagnosing. Number three, well, the hospital's dirtier today than it used to be because, you know, housekeeping's have lots of turnover now. And I asked nurses, I just spoke at Magnet. Hey, if the hospital, if the room's a little bit dirty, what do you do? They said, we clean it. We clean it. You know, they're not, I'm not talking about buffing, but they're going to clean it. And the fourth one, Mark, I thought was really interesting. And and looking at at your book and investment and training and development um, with so many new nurses, they're afraid of floating. And of course, this is all to reduce cost because it's not travel nurses we want to get rid of. It's the cost of travel nurses. So so reality is they're floating these young nurses. Now, I'm not saying some shouldn't be floated, but they should have say so in their floating. And so what I'm, I'm going into is when you start getting more granular, instead of just throwing a blanket over everything, you, you you start learning. So you could look at nurse engagement, and you could think it's one thing, but when you start asking the actual people that mm-hmm. are doing it, so I was sitting with their healthcare organization. The CEO had me come in because the employee engagement from the nursing staff showed lack of trust, organizational doesn't care, and well being. And this is a CEO who, honest to gosh, is one of the better CEOs. And so he, I sat down with the CNO and I asked her the question about charge nurse and staffing. And he was literally surprised. And I, I think most CEOs in a big system would not mm. be that granular. I, mm. But and the reason is because he told him to get rid of. So so he didn't realize that he's the reason that the charge nurses are in staffing mm. he limited use of travel nurses. But he didn't know that. Yeah. So I think it's you got to dig into the devil's in the detail.
0: Right. I mean, asking, going to see, to use your phrase, rounding with a purpose, you know, to yeah. go and try to learn um, what are these concerns and do people feel a level of psychological safety to where they, they they feel like they can actually raise the concern?
1: That's number two. Now you're like, I feel like I'm in a game show here. So for the human margin book with Catherine Meese, she's a researcher and employee trust. Number two, Number two, biggest influencer in trust in an organization is Am I comfortable sharing my concerns? Yeah. Number one is Do I feel the information I'm getting is valid and honest? Right.
0: And there's probably a dynamic of um, if you feel safe sharing your concerns and it's heard, does it translate into action? Because if it doesn't translate into action, people will, will give up and say, Well, you know, it's not the fear factor, it's a uh, futility factor.
1: Um, I was, I was doing round focus groups with physicians. Okay. in a pretty well known place. And, um, the, the administrator of the clinic was with me. So I just went around and said, you know, you guys are smart and ladies, you wouldn't be here if there weren't some good things. Tell me why this is a good place. And they brought it up, you know, and then I said, well, if there's something that you think could go better, well, what is that? Cause I want to get them thinking, I don't want to just go there. I got to get them in the right frame of mind. So then they bring things up and they went around the room and after and the administrator said to them, how come you're telling him this <laughs> stuff? And you haven't told me, right. and the, number, the th- Mark, you just nailed it. They said, we have, nothing's been done. Mm. And, and I think that's why I created mm-hmm. this thing called focus, fix, and follow up. Right. Close close the loop. Don't yep. assume people know that you right. fixed something. I was rounding on a unit one time and, and I asked the question, and the, the PM shift, the, the day shift or the P there was like shift change. And the PM shift person said, Well, here's a real concern. We don't have something or inventory. The day shift said, Oh no, we've got it. We've got it. But see, there wasn't that connection of handovers. So the person doesn't even look for it because they don't think it's even there, because the day shift hasn't told the night shift it's in. So you know, when you were in healthcare, you got a lot of handoffs or handovers. So that tightening up the communication loops or and closing the loop. That's what I tell people. Just close the loop. Close it. Tell people it's done. Or I mean, one, one lesson I've
0: even learned, this is kind of more from like Toyota Origins and you know, Kaizen continuous improvement mindset. There are times when the action cannot be done or it can't be done right now. Even closing the loop on that in a respectful way, means a lot. So then people don't feel ignored. They've heard the rationale of, I know you made the suggestion and this is in the plans and the capital planning. It's not going to happen for 18 months, but we hear you and it's coming,
1: you know? Mark, you just, God, you're just nailing everything like boom, boom, boom. Um, I think what happens is, and it's very, it's natural human tendency. Somebody will say, well, I didn't want to go back until I had it figured out. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I always tell people. Yeah, so I say so. to you, Mark, Mark, let me go research that and look into it. And I might not have the answer in a week, but in a week, I'm going to come back and tell you if I don't have the answer when I will. People just want to know you heard me. You listen to me. And I always tell people sometimes if you wait till you have the final answer, they've already given up on you. They've already said. So I always want to give the the date. Hey, I'll get back to you on this date. Even if I have no up, no new information, I'll just tell you where we're at with what we're talking about. That's sort of what people people want. They want to know you heard me mm-hmm. and, you're, and you're doing something about it. That's why I don't like the word working on without a date. You know, people say I'm working on it. So, let <laughs> me understand what working on it means. Because yeah. when I was young and somebody said, how's it going? When I said working on it, it meant I forgot completely about it. But now that you've asked me about it, I'm going to go and really work on it.
0: Yeah. Or working on it means I'm thinking about maybe getting into developing a plan or like. like 100%, 100%. 100%.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, you know, so you touched on a couple aspects of culture we've touched on. Um, you know, the unfortunate, um, impact of blame culture. You talked about Quint, the importance of having say, so like that, that thoracic surgeon, part of, I think why he retired early, you know, the physician, the surgeon group, he was a part of got acquired by a health system. And he said, maybe a little bit self-effacingly, I learned I'm not a good employee, but I know there was, you know, probably more to it than that. But you you were going to say?
1: Well, they've always been employees. It's just what type of system. It could be an independent system. It could be that. In my new book, Rewiring, I actually have a chapter on creating physician ownership when they don't own. Because if you look at from when you and I got into this, I, I was worked at Mercy Hospital in Janesville, Wisconsin. And in 1989 or 90, we hired our first doctor, you know, that And I was, it was Gene Hartlob and I hired him and, you know, it was so unusual and the medical staff is upset. We had to put him in Evansville, Wisconsin. So he's like half hour away and the whole, the whole bit. And, um, and, but now many times in a medical staff, 70, it depends on the geography where you're at, but you know, it can be 70 to 80% of the physicians are a W2 employee of the healthcare system so how do we replace what they used to have and you know physician ownership was really really positive because they were very involved in the selection so again um a healthcare system um you know they they look at out migration of patients that's a big deal when you have all these employed physicians you assume they're going to refer within your system and then they do a study and find out that 30% most of the time, it's about 30% of the time, they're referring out of network. You can't ethically ask a physician to refer in network, because they're in network. Because that, that is like, the, the, you lose that doc forever, because they just think that you don't. And you can't ask a physician's going to do what's right for I'm a big physician fan, as you can tell, they're going to do what's right for the patient. And so what they did is they had like, What, 450 employed physicians. So they just basically asked the physicians, they had them fill out a survey. How much do they know about their group?
0: And And the capabilities? Yeah, they didn't know. They didn't
1: know this. They didn't know that. You know, and and part of it, again, every change has a positive thing and sometimes it's a negative thing. In the old days, the docs used to go to the hospital and at least eat lunch in the physician dining room, which doesn't exist in many places. They go to the medical library, which doesn't exist in many places. And in my book, Rewiring, I talk about the first hospitalist, the guy that created hospitalists before somebody else got credit for creating hospitalists. Um, The hospitalists are there. So so all of a sudden they found out, they were amazed at how little, 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 physicians knew about their own people in their group. I remember talking to a CEO and they just had a big physician retreat. And I said, how'd you like it? She said, oh, it was wonderful. Doctors would come up to somebody and they'd say, well, gee, I've been referring patients to you. It's nice to meet you. And so you have to still let them be involved in selection of talent. You have to let them be involved in the brand. You don't sit here and roll out a new brand without the docs because they are the brand. You let them in on the discussion topic. So in the chapter, I talk about, you know, how how do you allow the physician as much as possible to feel they have some control over their own destiny? And they're no different than a patient. I got interviewed by hospice the other day and they said, you know, do you feel it's better for a patient to be in their own home or do you think it's better to be in a hospice unit? I said, I think it's better to be where the patient feels they want to be.
0: Right. That patient.
1: Yes. And I think, I think that's the same thing with physicians. So yeah, I I think it's a huge change for physicians and I I think they've had to adjust to change more than anybody in healthcare. And I think that's really been dramatic. Now the younger physicians, not as much because they sort of didn't know anything differently. Just still don't want to lose their their passion because they have got into healthcare to take care of patients, just like a nurse, just like everybody else.
0: Yeah, and I mean in that in that story or that you know scenario you talk about of um, why physicians are referring um, outside of the health system. It, it shows the power the 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 problem with assumptions. People are leaping to the conclusion of, oh, they're not team players or whatever. Like, maybe it's a knowledge gap, as you highlighted. How do we help educate them so they are making that patient centered decision based on a broader set of accurate information?
1: I think we have to assume we, we assume things that might not be right. So, for example, I was when I was an administrator, we had a lot of splitters, okay, people that work at different hospitals. We actually had what we call physician relationship staff members that would go out to develop relationships of what do you want from us? Also, back in the day, when specialists particularly were very independent, they did everything they could to earn the primary care referral. They get to know them. And it seems like today, a healthcare system can assume, or they can assume, they don't have to do that. But a healthcare system helps Set up that type of system, set up that type of get to know you, set up that type of relationship. Uh, I think it's really important. Um, TriHealth has a lot of primary care physicians in, out of Cincinnati, and they've done a really good job creating that sense of ownership with the group. So, for example, as you know, they right now we're going through Medicare signups, you know, and they've been really working with their physicians about Medicare Advantage. The different players, the different reimbursement. What do they think if the system decides maybe to to look at one system other than the other? But they really involved all their really all their physicians in this thought process, and not every place does that. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, and assumptions lead to all sorts of mistakes, and, and maybe we kind of transition to talk about mistakes. You know, I, I'd reached out. Um, that excellent article that that you wrote um there in Pensacola uh, it's on the internet I'll link to it in the show notes show notes uh, I may be wrong the power of admitting our mistakes you know I thought that was a, a great piece and so the you know, one question for you Quint like why why do you think people get vilified for saying they were wrong or, or changing their mind based on new knowledge
1: well I, I think part of it you know, again now I'm on a... Gosh, I'm a, you know notice a character. If I sometimes you notice characteristics in others, you have yourself. We just talked about blaming something. I I think so much of it comes a, a couple things. One is certainly politically, and I've never understood why when a politician changes his mind, he gets beat up or she gets beat up. I think they should be thanked. They hey, since I've done some research on this, <laughs> I've now got another look. I, I heard a pretty interesting f- person in a hospital recently say if they had to do it over again, they wouldn't have called the COVID a vaccine. Because when people hear vaccine, they think like polio, measles, it's not gonna happen. They would have probably called it a treatment that helps reduce the severity of the illness. They thought they would have gotten a lot better utilization. And he said, we were wrong calling it a vaccine because it really doesn't fit the definition of what people think is a vaccine. And that was a physician. I thought that was pretty powerful. Then he said, hey, we made a real mistake here on that. But I think so politicians get beat up. And the other thing in healthcare, and I I think we just are so terrified of lawsuits, so terrified. I was very lucky. I worked for a fellow named Mark Clement at Holy Cross Hospital, and we had a patient that we made a mistake. And, you know, instead of having 13 risk management people and 12 attorneys in the room, Mark brought the family in and said, we made a mistake. Mm-hmm. We made a tragic mistake here. And it was tragic. And he talked about him through it, what we what we can do. It was such an influence for me that when I came to Pensacola's president of the hospital, when a patient had a complaint, I never had risk management in the room. I had me in the room. And I remember probably one that we had a a fellow from Atmore, Alabama cut off two fingers and they put him in ice. And our helicopter came and got him and brought him to Pensacola. At the time we had two physicians that were not getting along and each thought the other one should take call. So he came to our ER in a helicopter, I think it was a Saturday night with his fingers in a plastic bag and we didn't have a surgeon to reattach them. So we put him back in the helicopter and flew to the University of Southern South Alabama, okay, where they reattached the fingers. So I met with the family and first of all, I looked at his fingers and said, they did a great job. <laughs> yeah. They really did. I'm looking at them. They really did do a great job. And I said, we really blew this one. We made a huge mistake. And I just fessed up to it. And I said, what can I do to make this right? And they were very reasonable. So we're going to have those bad experiences. I get it. But I just think you got to, you're going to have to sometimes say you just screwed up you know, um, you just screwed up. I made a mistake. I didn't understand this. I I wish I would have known more. Um, that's just it. We're all human beings, but we don't want to just blame it and say, well, we're everyone's human. We would, that, that doesn't go anywhere. We have to be very specific. What, what can I do to make this right?
0: Right. Right. Um, and, and yeah, I, I sometimes hear that comment with this sort of self-defeating shoulder shrug of, um, well, everyone's human. Human error is always going to occur. So, what can we do about that? I'm like, well, let, let's work on answering that question. Can we yeah. use checklists and procedures? And you know, are there there are systematic ways we can prevent many, many, many errors? And and well, sometimes people just don't try. It seems.
1: Well, I think you hit it though, Mark. I, I think sometimes we have to decide what do we need a checklist and what don't we. I think sometimes we create checklists that don't need to. We have a checklist for the list of the checklist. <laughs> so, right. so I'm not a big fan of rounding apps for employees because I think I think it's a lot of work. The managers tell me they don't like them, and 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 that's the only relationship I have with you, Mark. But now, when it comes to patient care or or clinical outcomes, we have 60 different people touching them. It's a standing operating procedure, and this is not a healthcare. But one of the best books I ever read. Was called E Myth Revisited.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I read that a long time ago.
1: Yeah, yeah. and and uh, after I read it, it's like I get, oh my gosh, we don't have standard operating procedures, and I think that's we need really solid, good standard operating procedures, just like pilots do the checklist all the time. Right. Um. I I think it makes all the sense in the world, and so I think there's then you have to say, is it the system? Well, if you have a good system and it's not working, then it, it could be um the technology might not be all we thought it was wrapped up to be. Because you know, in healthcare, we love grabbing technology early because we think it's gonna solve the whole problem. And it's okay to grab it early. Just just admit that we're gonna learn as we go along. And I think that's what happened with electronic health care. There's so much money available, just like popped on the scene quick, knowing, like you know, I was at a conference at Kaiser years ago. And the consultant said, "Sometimes you have to get in traffic before you know how the thing's going to run." And in healthcare, that means sometimes we're going to be in traffic, and we have to make adjustments as as we go go along, and that's okay too. To say, so here's an, a quick example of a system. In my book, Hardwiring Excellence, I talk about we've learned, we studied it that if you meet with a new employee on the thirtieth day and ninetieth day, we could reduce turnover. Okay. So we got all excited about that. So, so we Airmark Healthcare Plus. We're working with them, and we're deciding because you know they're going to put in the thirty and ninety day pilot. They're going to—I call it an operational trial—and I'd love to talk to you about that before we we hang up. What what an operational trial is, and um, so I, I'm pretty pumped because I think it's going to work. So we, we they did it in one of their areas, and the and the person came back and said it didn't work. We said, what do you why didn't it work? They said, well, people aren't here 30 days. <laughs> and what I've learned oh, in certain wow. there, they're the thing in healthcare today, until you ask, there's people that take a job and don't show up. That's number one. If they do show up, particularly in some, some parts of the healthcare, they come in and if they've ever worked in healthcare, I've cleaned rooms in a hotel. And I'm excited about being in the hospital. I'm telling my friends I work in the hospital and I'm going to need orientation. It's purpose, mission. And then all of a sudden I go into the first room I'm going to clean. And there's a patient there. There's wires there. I go back to that hotel the next day. And, and so what we had to do is change the process. So now they do a first day, a fourth day, a seventh day. Um, so that's, a, that's an area where the environment has changed. So we need to shift a process. So that's that's a process or a system. Then I think the other thing is, does the person have the skill? And you and I both come from a world of investing in skill development. And I'm just always stunned. And I got interviewed by George Washington University for a master's in healthcare administration the other day. And um, they basically said to me, a characteristic of a really good CEO. And I said a real good CEO sees skill building as an investment. A not so good CEO sees skill building as an inv- as an expense. Right. Yeah. And now I think there's some bad skill building that, you know, there's some training that isn't workable, but that's not changed the investment. And I think today with all the new people, we need to be, we need to be doubling down on skill building and investment. Cause people are terrified. If you ask a new manager, what's their biggest concern? It's I don't know if I can do this job. So last I met George Washington. So they were talking about high reliable organizations. And they said, well, do you think an organization is high relo- reliable? It reduces innovation. And I said, I think it shouldn't. Because if you're highly reliable and you're still not getting the outcome you need, then you have to relook at innovation. Also, though, what I love about healthcare, in, in the clinical side. So I'm at, if I'm at Moffitt Cancer Center and I'm talking to um, their expert on melanoma, they're going to give the best treatment for melanoma that they know is possible based on what they do but while they're doing it they're doing clinical trials like crazy looking at how do we get it better and no one goes up to the doctor and says doctor are you doing something wrong because i notice you're trying to figure out a better way i said maybe we should call these things operational trials and say maybe because i just think we're reluctant to take risk in healthcare we're just reluctant. And so we'll stick with something that isn't working just because it's safe.
0: So there's a parallel between operational trial and clinical
1: trial. I think if I can and, use that word, mm-hmm. I'm trying to create a safer environment for people mm-hmm. to try things.
0: Yeah. I I mean, I, there's and then there's the conundrum. I've run across this a lot where You know, there's some sort of change proposed and people will then fall back on. I want to see all the studies and the evidence that prove that this is the best way to do it when. Yes. The status quo was not selected based off of studies and evidence and trials. I I feel like a cat
1: and you're giving me catnip today. (laughs) Anyway, um, well, it's a perfect example. And that's why Catherine Meese and I wrote this book, The Human Margin, is because when I give ideas, people say, do you have any research? when she gets the research they say do you have any solution now there are at times like fred loop who's deceased now he's the guy that saved cleveland clinic and he told me how he invented something he was a cardiovascular surgeon he said the patient was not going to make it so he decided to try something and he saved the patient's life it became common practice and, and I think sometimes you're going to go first. So let me give you an example, Mark at MUSC in out of Charleston. They've got a lot of new leaders. so they've got 264 new leaders that they want to make sure stay. So we're in there and our strat our goal is to help keep those people. So of course a big part of it is investing in skill building, but we're also Mark piloting something called a personal retention plan. So, Mark, you come to work for me and I say, Mark, you know, we want to make sure this is the place for you. This is the place you feel you belong, not only today, but a year from now, two years from now, five years from now. So we're going to have a personal retention plan for you. Now, when we talk about and I have them pick the questions, but we have some. What what's what type of place is it that you really are looking for so you feel you belong? Um, Tell me something in the past that has made you really feel good about where you work. Tell me something that might force you to say, I don't know if this is the right place for me. Let's talk about our investment in skill building and how we're going to talk about that. Let me go through our well-being resources we have available because we know life comes along. We want to make sure we support you not only in work, but outside of work. Tell me the type of boss that you do best with. And let me share with you how to best work with me. Those are some samples. Right. I love it. Mark, we just started this MUSC. Mm -hmm. I have no idea if it's going to work. Yeah. Do I think it's going to work? Yep. You have good hypothesis. But I don't know it's going to work. But I'm glad that MUSC is doing it because we're going to find out. That's what I'm talking about. And I've always been really straight of saying, I don't know if this is going to work but I think it's going to work. We did this thing based on everything I know, but we're going to probably have to tweak it as we go. Maybe those questions aren't questions, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I I think we've got to be better at not judging people because you're going to have some misses. You know, that's why I love clinical trials. They'll do a clinical trial and they'll come back and say, it wasn't as effective as we thought. So we're not going to go forward with that medication for Alzheimer's or for this, for that. But gosh, darn it. If you got Alzheimer's, you're glad they're trying. Right.
0: Yeah. No, and and, and that was a big focus in the mistakes that make us, you know, the chapter on iterate your way to success. And the things you're articulating, Quint, I think are really helpful things for, you know, kind of scientific uh, improvement. Like here's the hypothesis, We have some knowledge. There's basis for it, but we're going to go and test and we're going to plan, do, study, adjust. And that's good. And, you know, you mentioned COVID. Um, I had not heard those comments about, um, oh, maybe it was a mistake to call it a vaccine. And like things in that realm, especially, are so polarized, of course. But I, I heard some people saying that a while ago, but I'll tell you, they weren't clinical in background. So I didn't You know, I thought like, well, you're you're just trying to dissuade people from from getting that injection, whatever we call it. And But now I'm sure if things like this come out, people will hop all over. Well, see, I told you I was right. Therefore, I'm right about everything else. I'm like, well, that's probably unlikely to be true.
1: (laughs) Hey, another part of your book I really like, and you remind me again, I'm I'm almost feeling like a Mark Clement testimonial here, but Mark, Mark Clement, when he was president of Holy Cross, he brought us in. And he wanted to do, he was suggesting something. And we had a small executive team, like four of us or five. And we're sitting and we're, we're explaining to him sort of our reluctance to try this change he's recommending. And then he asked the question, it's in your book. He said, is it better than what we're currently doing? And we said, oh yeah, it's better than what we're doing. He said, let's do better for a while. And I love the fact that you say about, you know, 80%, Eighty percent. If it improves it, it improves it. But when Mark lowered the bar and didn't say it had to be perfect, he just said, "Is it better?" And I think that's the other thing um, we get in the way. We we get into this perfection, and people are going to judge us if it just isn't right. And I love the fact: is it better?
0: Yeah. Let's keep making it better, and you know we learn new things. And um, you know, I, as you said, I think our willingness to admit, hey, we learned something, we know more now, we're going to change our approach. Like, back in the early days of COVID, people were afraid to touch any surface anywhere. And then I think we learned more over time that that was not the primary transmission vector. And, you know, and, and it's okay to learn. And like, when we first moved to LA, in May of 2020, the beach paths, the beaches were shut down. And the beach paths, they wouldn't allow people to run or bike. And then I think they realized, okay, well, that's actually one of the safest things you can do. And that got opened up. And 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 some people still, out of an abundance of caution, chose to wear masks. And then I think we learned, well, okay, that that's not necessary either. And like that, to me, that doesn't debunk Medical knowledge or science knowledge. I mean that that's just a progression. We no, learn no, no. more and we can adjust.
1: Well, I think uh, you know there's a book out called Alive right now by Dr. Peter Atia, which is getting a lot of a lot of publicity, and it it should. In fact, it got recommended by my primary care physician, which I thought that's pretty good because there. You know the question. You know, and he said, you know, we would. He goes back to say when we used to bleed out people. <laughs> right. Okay. We just have to be, we have to celebrate when we change and when we make advances. And, and then we also have to question not every, sometimes things work for a while, and then they don't. So for example, trust, number one thing that we're seeing in research and healthcare right now is trust has never been worse. Employees have less trust for their sister. They like their boss, Mark, because their boss was with them during COVID. They like their direct supervisor, but they don't trust the senior executive team. A lot of it, senior executive team really couldn't do much about, you know, supply chain management. Are you telling me the truth? Vaccines, masking, visiting hours, you canceled training, you canceled celebrations, all the right things they did at the time. But it still impacted trust. So I look back today and I'm thinking, I was such a nut on validation. I went way overboard. I had managers validating so much. Yet in the back of my mind, you know, it's like, you know, if you said to your wife, I'm going away for the weekend, honey, could you document every hour what you do? <laughs> I don't think you, you know, she's not, she's not going to no. be that happy. And I think we, I mistake I made was taking va- validation to the extreme. Mm. And again, okay. when i met magnet and I asked, and, and I think there's a trust issue now. If I, you prove you don't trust, then we're going to talk about it. But, but I think we have to be really sensitive today. Are we subconsciously sending messages? We don't trust you. Wow. Okay. Autonomy is also a key indicator of trust. Right. The more autonomous I feel, the more trust I feel. However, we also want to combine autonomy with skill building. Because I also don't want to set you up to fail because I haven't invested in your skill to do the job well. I've ne- you're a baseball right. person. I've never understood, Mark, why they have people bunt that don't know how to bunt. <laughs> just you know, just just because just, just because the game plan makes sense to bunt if you don't know how to bunt, but you see it all the time in major league baseball.
0: Well, but you you talked earlier about the need for like a personalized Personalized medicine, personalized leadership. Um, yeah, it's got to be situational. And I, and I think even speaking of, I think things that people feel like they've learned, you see far less bunting in general because I think people have decided, like, oh, giving up the out yeah. is worse than the benefit of maybe moving the runner ahead. So yeah. even those decisions or when you go forward on fourth down, you're, you're in a hot football. spot right now.
1: You're Rangers. I mean, you live around yeah, Ranger that's, that's territory. Right. Pretty exciting.
0: Yep, they're off uh, to the World Series as uh, as we record this. So, um, you know, Quint, I want to be mindful of time. Um, maybe I mean, I, I apologize. We didn't. I didn't get the conversation to talk about the upcoming book. So maybe sometime- No, no, that's
1: maybe. fine. Well, you know, people. There's two things I'd love people to do. Really, one, they go to healthcareplussolutionsgroup.com. We have two great studies we just did with the ANA and the ONL on nursing care models for nursing. And and our company we spend most of any any profits we make we pump right into research right now I'm at that age and so we just there's some great research on staffing models and the other thing is because I didn't want money to ever get in the way my new book Rewiring Excellence of course they can order a hard copy for like ten bucks but they can also download it for free and it's eighty four pages and mark it's right up your alley it says if it's working don't fix it. But if it's not working, let's just take a fresh pair of eyes to it. And because we want to make it authentic. And some of the things we've taken, we've scripted it so much. And healthcare employees don't want to feel like they're scripted. They want to be authentic. And we've got to be real careful. To Now, with experience, you become more authentic because you get more comfortable. But I, I think in the book, it's only 84 pages. And I think people really tend, the feedback we've gotten is really, really Good. Sharp Healthcare just ordered a whole bunch of them because they said, yeah, we have to rewire things. Doesn't mean what we're doing was wrong. Right. Just needs a fresh pair of eyes periodically. Yeah. And there's no shame
0: in recognizing that things can be improved and rewired. So I hope people will check that out. And um, so maybe, you know, at some point when you're back off the road and before the next book comes out, I would love to have another conversation
1: with you sometime, Quint. You know, this is always uh, a lot of fun. I just recommended you to an organization the other day that, and I'm real picky about that because I want, I'm very sensitive about who I tell people they should call and use. And of course, when this organization said, Quint, we need help with lean, who do you recommend? You're the only name I gave.
0: Well, and thank you for that, Quint. And I I appreciate Yeah, we've had a good conversation there with that person. So thank you for that. Um, I hope people will check out, um, the books, uh, the website, you have a podcast now, the healthcare
1: plus podcast. Yeah. Yeah. We got, in fact, uh, am we got some really fun stuff. Um, MUSC is doing some pretty good stuff with artificial intelligence and we're going to talk about, you know, again, that's something new coming in. So how do we do it? Um, yeah, we've got a lot of a lot of good stuff. Emergency department stuff. I just go around the country and I find what I call somebody that's doing it right. I just want to share it. the great thing about healthcare. Mark is they'll share it. They, Cooperman Barnabas want they want a great ED, but they want everyone to have a great one. And you don't know where you're going to end up. So we're very fortunate to be in healthcare. It's a pretty sharing field, if you. But you've got to get away from thinking. It might not work here. Well, it might. Give it a shot. You might have to tweak it. But it might work. At least some of it might work.
0: Yeah. We do that operational trial. So
1: yes. that's great
0: advice. So again, we've been joined today. Uh, Quint Studer, author of books including Hardwiring Excellence, The Busy Leader's Handbook, The Calling, Rewiring Excellence, and then the upcoming book, Um, the human margin. Um, Quint, thank you so much for um, the great conversation here today. Really, really appreciate it.
1: Well, Mark, you and I go way, way back. So I appreciate the impact you continue to have on healthcare. Thank you.
0: Well, thanks again to Quint for being our guest today. Again, to learn more about him, his books, his firm, and more, go to leanblog.org slash 490.